This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm Steve Anderson, your host, and I hope your 2020 year has started out with a bang, with big ideas and big goals and big dreams, ready to launch and get going for the new year. This will be my 60th episode, and I'm so thrilled with how this program has evolved. Uh, you know, a lot of people say uh, if, if you want to hear, uh, if you like a podcast, go back and listen to the first few, and you can see uh, how much you've improved and, and how much better it has become, and, and I certainly uh, can appreciate that. I've really appreciated your support over the last few years, so thank you for listening, and thanks for continuing to listen, and pass the word, and, and tell your friends, and let's see if we can in- increase the, the listenership of this program as well. So let's get started, and I'll introduce you to my next guest today is Michelle Heffron. Michelle Heffron has over 30 years experience as an executive leader in the philanthropic nonprofit organizations. Currently, she is the executive director in the Pacific Northwest for One Love Foundation. One Love is the nation's leading educator of young people on the topic of healthy and unhealthy relationships. She also serves on the national leadership team for One Love. She has also held positions as Director of Resource Development and Capital Campaign for the Bellevue Washington Boys and Girls Club. She shares her expertise with other foundations and organizations through her own consulting business. She is a graduate of Eastern Washington University and has completed training from the Pacific Institute and Insights Discovery. Good morning, Michelle. Welcome to the program. Steve, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, can you share for us the story of the One Love Foundation and what their mission is? Sure. Our overall goal right now is to educate young people on what's healthy and unhealthy in relationships and be able to um, kind of identify unhealthy behaviors and healthy behaviors, and then also know what to do if you should see someone in an unhealthy relationship or see yourself in one. But then also as a friend or, you know, a brother, sister, parent, whatever, teacher, be able to um, activate by actually stepping in and doing more about it. Not just, it's not just about awareness. It's about actually um, mobilizing a mission to uh, teach people how to love better. And the way One Love started uh, really was um, in 2010, May 3rd, 2010, uh, Yardley Love, who was this lovely um, young woman who attended the University of Virginia. She was just about ready to graduate. She was a D1 athlete. She was from a white upper middle class family and just had all the things going for her in her life. And three weeks before graduation, her ex-boyfriend beat down her door and actually beat and killed her. She was found face down in her bed in a pool of blood. At the time, 
the family, it was tragic, obviously. Uh, this yeah, terribly tragic. Yes. Every parent's nightmare, really. Um, and at the time, her family didn't really understand what had happened. They just thought this was some very random act of violence. They had no clue, absolutely no clue that Yardley had been in any danger. They had no idea that she had been in an abusive relationship. And it was really only um, a couple of years into the trial um, where they started to discover that there had been warning signs and red flags um, that had been all over. And had Yardley, uh, her friends, her coaches, her teachers, her family, or even Yardley, yeah, and Yardley herself, if she had um, been able to identify these warning signs, Yardley could be alive today. And um, so as the family was going through this, the trial, what one of the trigger points was that um, out of the hundreds of jurors that they interviewed, one in three had direct um, experience with domestic violence and were unable to be um, used as a juror. And that was pretty eye-opening. Um, and so they, um, it spurred them into action to do more. Um, and one of, so when they, they started the whole foundation pretty quickly after her death, and it was really to honor her uh, memory. And then the purpose of the foundation was to fund um, female uh, athletes um, and scholarships. And, um, but they wanted to do more. And, and one of their donors came to them and said, you know, you really must do something about this. This is, this is an issue that really needs to be addressed. And it, it's, it's you guys that need to do this. And so they quickly pivoted. And so our CEO now, who was actually a very close friend of the family and had been advising um, the family all along the way, um, said, look, what do you really want this to do? And Sharon Love, who is uh, Yardley's mother, said, what I want this foundation to do is what Mothers Against Drunk Driving did for drunk driving. And that was two things. It was really to stigmatize the behavior, and it shifted the focus you know, from the abused to the abuser, and it made it completely unacceptable for people to drive drunk. And the second step was to enable or empower bystanders to step in and take away the keys. And through this model, you can mobilize communities to do and to take action um, when they see abusive behavior or unhealthy behaviors in relationships. And that's essentially um, how we got started. Then um, we were we received some funding. A film was developed, and it was um, really kind of a, a film to teach young people um, abusive relationships. And it was aired on a college campus, and our CEO saw it, and she said, okay, every kid in America needs to see this film, because what it does is it really, really brings to light um, the unhealthy behaviors and how quickly unhealthy can escalate into dangerous. Um, and so, can, can you access that yeah. uh, that video on, on YouTube or somewhere where our listeners could find it if they wanted to see it? Yes. In fact, all of our materials, Steve, um, are... Um, offered on our website, and we offer everything actually uh, as free access to people because we feel like it's so important that people get this message. Um, and since the initial film came out, um, we've also built 
um, a whole discussions around the way these um, materials are consumed. Um, we'll go into a school, for instance, and we'll show the video, and then we break up into small groups, and we actually have a discussion guide that's built around that um, particular film. So back to your question, yes, everything's accessible through our web the website. Escalation, which was our first film and the longest workshop that we do, was designed um, really to be shown on um, college campuses and maybe seniors in high school. So right now that curriculum is, is great for juniors, seniors, anybody going into college and then on the college campuses. Um, since that time, we've also developed a whole host of other um, films and discussions that we have available on our website as well with a couple of new ones coming out later this year. Okay, go ahead but, and uh, give your website address so uh, listeners can, can look it up. Sure, it's uh, uh, www.joinonelove, all one word, joinonelove.org. Okay, thank you. And what I was going to say about Escalation, um, since it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty triggering film for some people, and it's a really difficult film to watch uh, because it does chronicle um, the relationship of a young college uh, couple from the early beginnings of, you know, all of the um, butterfly feelings and everything, and it does end with an on-screen death. So it's a pretty tough video to watch. I've watched it several times, and it's still hard for me to watch. So we do require on that video um, that people go through a training before they actually can access that one. Um, so there is a gate um, code and everything, really, that they have to go through to um, get trained before they actually um, view it. Yeah, uh, it's obvious that the story creates outrage and sadness, uh, Yardley story, but it, it takes a lot to run a foundation to, to keep it going. So what does it take to keep a national foundation like this sustainable? <laughs> what a great question. Well, our model is based on a few things. Partnerships are one of our biggest um, the ways that we can keep this foundation going and partnerships in terms of working with uh, schools and youth-facing organizations and other groups um, around the country who have access to young people. Because um, So in the time that we have been actually doing this education, which is just a little over five years now, we've educated um, in, in person over about a million kids or young people. And and with that, we've uh, trained over 23,000 facilitators. So we actually train facilitators to go out and do these workshops because we don't feel like you have to be an expert to um, share this information. Part of it is being able to go out and train other people to do this work for us. Um, and so that's a really big part of it. So this last week, for instance, our CEO was here in Seattle. We were visiting a number of organizations, and we were meeting with Boys and Girls Clubs and YMCAs and um, different organizations who actually have um, the, the staff who's already paid to go out and actually, and they're already working with kids. So this is a tool that we can give them to augment some of the programming that they're already doing. And healthy relationships are such an important thing that it's really kind of top of mind or becoming more and more top of mind that it's an easy access for them. Yeah. Do you think the message is, is getting heard? Is it resonating with, uh, with young uh, males and females to the point where you, you, you think it's making a difference? Do you feel like it's, it's sinking in? Yeah, I do. That's great. Um, and it's great. We are starting to get evidence of that all the time. Um, 
I'll tell you one of the greatest stories we just heard this week. Um, we do a lot of work with the Navy, and um, so we tested out a program with uh, the Navy earlier last year where we went in and we did a master training program, and we trained 70 individuals within the Navy where they were, um, and they went through an intensive uh, three-and-a-half-day training with our staff. We actually sent staff to Japan to do this uh, training and the master trainers then were able to train other people in their units um, to do this programming. So we heard back from um, one of the chaplains um, actually Monday night, and she had been a master trainer, and she went on. She went deployed uh, for seven months, and on the ship there was like 3,000 um, sailors and they, she trained other people to do the workshops. And throughout that seven months, everybody on that entire ship was, had gone through the programming. And during that time, um, they were finding that a lot of people were coming in and self-identifying with some of the unhealthy behaviors and said they needed help. Some of them were sharing that they were in unhealthy or abusive um, relationships and needed help. Um, and so that was a really cool thing. But the most gratifying thing was that when they got back um, and that re-entry point, that six weeks after re-entry into the families, that is when um, the highest um, reports of domestic violence occur. And in the six weeks following um, them coming home, zero reports of domestic violence from that ship, which is pretty amazing because the only thing that changed, the only thing that changed was that one love programming was available throughout the entire seven months. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's, a, I mean, it's anecdotal, but it's really um, pretty impressive, I think. I mean, to me, that is kind of why we're doing this work. And so to get back to your, is it men and women? Absolutely, because relationships really are foundational, right, in all of our lives. You know, with our kids, you know, our kids start their relationships with friends early on. And so our dream really is that eventually all kids will have this um, training and, you know, K through 12. And we, um, we root all of our work in 10 signs of unhealthy and healthy relationship behaviors. So we're actually the attached a word to a behavior. It's not a person that's bad. There's behaviors that are not good. And so I feel like, or we, we, we truly believe that if we bring this language and all of people from everywhere and all kids are getting the same language, the same words that they're using, this will become ubiquitous among all of our people. Eventually, over time, we'll see real change. And that's exactly what we saw with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. It didn't happen overnight. But in the last 30 years, drunk driving deaths have diminished by 55%. So... Yeah, and I, I think, and I think if you look at the generations too, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, in my generation as a teenager and a young adult, um, it wasn't on our radar as much, and and we weren't as good as it, it appears that uh, my kids now and and um, you know uh, millennials and and so on, uh, it's just so much more on their radar. So sometimes it might take a generation, or or as you say, take time. But I I. I, I I'm thrilled that you're doing this because obviously this is a this is a big issue that has been kind of under the radar for a while until it's come forward on on something like this. 
Well, and you're absolutely right. And one of the, the challenges really is um, is kind of shining a light on this issue as a real issue because some people think, I don't think they feel like healthy relationships is really is that, that important. But if you really think about it, now we're learning that it's root cause to so many other issues we're seeing, anything from, you know, it's not just domestic violence, but it's homelessness, it's it's substance abuse, wellness, um, um, mental mental health. I mean, there's so many issues, and everything's really, if you think about it, it's tied to how our relationships um, are developed and and fostered and, and grow over time. And so um, I think we're learning more and more all the time. Research is showing that relationship health is, is a pretty important thing. And until we as a society actually kind of lift that up and really understand the importance of it, and actually do something about it. I don't, I mean, we're going to continue to go down the same path. And and our kids are seeing everything. I was just watching something this morning on the Today Show about, um, you know, screen time with kids. And so, um, you know, they're having fewer and fewer interactions in person with friends. And so by taking kind of that familiar, which is the video piece of it, which we do, and you couple it with the unfamiliar, which is, having to sit around in a circle and talk about it, you're kind of um, bringing some different perspective um, to the way young people operate. Yeah, well, I think we we can all appreciate that, you know, relationship with uh, someone you, you d- deeply love can be so powerful and so meaningful. And on the other hand, it can be so destructive and, and so horrible as well if it's, if it's, uh, if it's done in a in a poor fashion or unhealthy, as you say. So it's, uh, it's something we all long for, but, uh, not everyone, um, not everyone hits it right. Well, right. You know, sometimes, um, you know, things that we think are love, like in our unhealthy relationship list, um, one of them is, uh, manipulation, guilting, or some of them, um, responsibility, um, possessiveness. And, and when sometimes young people especially think that if your partner isn't jealous of other people, then they don't love you. But, you know, love sometimes is, um, or what we think is love, is sort of a mask for um, not being real love. And so learning really what those behaviors are that are healthy and being able to understand what that looks like and actually talk about what it looks like and how to do it um, is something we've never been taught and we've never taught our young people. Yeah, along those lines, I can remember telling my son that, that what I learned is that, you know, you, you used to kind of think as, as a man that if you uh, were jealous towards your spouse that, uh, uh, you know, that that showed love or that was something that showed how much you loved them. And, and in reality, mm-hmm. women hate that. They, they hate it when, when right. guys are jealous like that and make a scene and whatever, you know. So it's, uh, it's just one of those weird things that, that maybe males are programmed with uh, for whatever reason that just doesn't make sense. Right. Well, we've all been programmed in certain ways and, um, and think it's just normal. You know, we've normalized these behaviors. I don't think it was necessarily intentional in that we <laughs> were trying to, you know, mess everybody up. <laughs> but I think that um, it, that's kind of what has happened. And so what we are learning and what we should have figured out a long time ago is, that, you know, there are certain behaviors that 
we really need to be teaching our young people, um, you know, to foster more healthy relationships in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have read that foundations that start after a specific incident, like um, uh, the horrible death of Yardley, uh, often struggle as time goes on when the news event kind of starts to fade away, and and so they have some steam when they start, and then it kind of goes away. So why is this one different? Well, that's a great question because, you know, when we started, it was a foundation, meaning that we were funding young people uh, through scholarships, uh, young female athletes through scholarships. And when we decided, when we realized what we were really needing to do was go out and educate people, we pivoted um, how we were managing this. So we we don't fund scholarships anymore. That's not what our purpose is and our mission. And although everything has been born out of this tragedy, what we've done is we've taken this tragedy and we're building a program of hope um, because we believe that we can actually change the social norms around relationship health. So in building out this curriculum and building out these films and in building out this, um, you know, army of volunteers, if you will, um, we're saturating the country on college campuses, on high school campuses, on middle school campuses right now. And we're working to change policy right now around relationship health education. Um, we're working with partners um, nationwide and in our local areas to um, push this education out and, and help get this out everywhere. So in terms of how do we keep this sustainable, it's really through um, funding, obviously. It's funding through uh, foundations and individuals um, and communities. And so um, so we've grown and we, we haven't hit um, a plateau yet. We are continuing to grow right now. And what's happening every time we're out in front of people, there it's kind of this aha and people are wanting to help either by volunteering making introductions, um, helping us just push the brand out a little bit, or funding us out of this tragedy. And, and we, we continue to work with families who are going through this own, their own tragedies similar to this. So, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't hit that. We haven't, we're, we're just growing right now like crazy, and it's unbelievable. In fact, this last month, I feel like um, things have just exploded um, in terms of the number of people who want this programming here just in Washington State, but even nationwide, and then also the funding aspect of it, we're getting introduced to new people all the time who want to invest in this mobilization of healthy relationship education. And so we're pretty um, excited about what our future looks like at this point. Well, unfortunately, there's a, a lot of work to do in that area, so I commend you for um, leading the charge. So switching gears a little bit, um, why did you uh, leave the uh, Bellevue Boys and Girls Club to join One Left? Well, so I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I believe um, that I've been on a little pathway uh, especially over the last several years, to get to this point where I am. Um, I, uh, myself, I was in um, a, a rather unhealthy marriage, and I didn't realize really until I got out of it and have looked back um, since being with One Love how, how it had escalated and how many of the unhealthy relationships were present in my own. 
And um, so I kind of started on this path of um, reinventing myself over the last 10 years when I found myself having to go back to work. I had been a stay-at-home mom for a while, and but I had been getting into the nonprofit um, world. Working as a consultant, and I got involved with the Wave Foundation, and um, that sort of opened my eyes to this other world of, you know, what it um, what it looks like to be associated um, or understand a little bit more about um, domestic violence, which I really um, didn't know very much about. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I just never really had a lot of that on my radar. And then from that experience, I um, went on and started to work with the Boys and Girls Club eventually. Um, and youth development is really sort of where my sweet spot is. I really feel like the youth of our future are super important. Um, and I was loving all of that. And at the same time, I knew I needed to do more. There was something more that I wanted to do. And I started working with a coach, um, and she made me come up with a personal mission statement. And I thought about it for a long time, and I, you know, I kind of thought through my life, what I had done and what I, you know, had always wanted. Um, and I realized that what I um, wanted to do in my life was make a positive impact on the lives of millions of people. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that was the thing. And just a short time after that, uh, Sharon uh, Anderson sent me the job description for One Love uh, and to open up the Pacific Northwest region um, here as your executive director. And I looked at the job description and I went, oh, my goodness, this is me. I should be doing this. And so I, um, I set off, and it took me about four months. It was a long process. Um, but I started about 14 months ago, and since that time, um, I, I worked really hard. It's a really, it's a big job. Um, and I have a small team, but it's just been one of the most gratifying things I've ever done. And I, uh, I just... I know this is where I'm supposed to be and, and where I will be able to impact the lives of millions of people. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. And for full disclosure here, Sharon Anderson is my wife and the uh, the founder and director of uh, the Wave Foundation for 13 years until she just recently retired. So um, that's a good connection there. For sure. So tell, sure. <laughs> tell us about your experience with the Pacific Institute and how that had shaped your leadership journey. That was one of my very early jobs out of college. I had gone, so I'm, I'm a Pacific Northwest native. I grew up here. I attended Kennedy High School, which is where Lou Tice had been a teacher. Um, he didn't teach me. He had started Pacific Institute um, maybe a little before I was there. But a lot of the young people or people, friends of mine from school had gravitated towards Pacific Institute when they were out of college. And so I um, started there, and I don't even remember what year it was, but it was in the 80s. Um, I went through the program Investment Excellence, and I have to say I was a little skeptical <laughs> of the whole you know, goal setting thing back then. But I'll tell you, it worked. And when I actually wrote down things and decided, and decided, that's, I think, what was the key. You had to decide truly that you wanted to do these things or you had these goals and that you were going to achieve them, that um, that uh, it worked. During that time, I learned a lot about um, leadership. Um, I 
worked with a group of people, became very good friends, a group of, of people that I still remain friends with. And um, it was just an amazing experience to see kind of how it was kind of one of my very first um, corporate jobs, I guess, out of college and um, just sort of learning about the different um, pieces of it and how each of the teams sort of um, led. Um, and then also how Lou kind of inspired everybody to come along with him. Um, he was quite charismatic, and um, I just remember, you know, he just we would gather in the afternoons a lot of times, and he would have nugget of inspiration for the day, and it was, um, and it stuck with me for a long time. And then I was always so amazed that everywhere I've gone, somebody here or there, you know, they'll say, "Oh, I did that," or "I was in that." Um, video or I participated or and so it's amazing too to me how um, much he touched people not just here but in other places in the country as well so it was an amazing experience and I was only there for a short time but it did um, actually set some foundation for me in terms of um, goal setting and um, kind of deciding how you wanted to do things and I'll tell you in my life when I steered away from doing those practices, I definitely suffered. Um, you know, my success rate suffered, and, and then I would free up and understand I got to go back to that, you know, sticking with the program. Yeah, and that's so cool. Well, and and uh, in reading your resume, as you know, I, I hit on that because uh, as a teenager, I started uh, doing some work with Lou Tice in the very early years of the Pacific Institute. And, you know, it's just interesting when you look back on it now, um, you know, we, we call it different things. And, and uh, but it basically was a mindset, you know, getting you in a certain mindset and getting you to think in a certain way and, and set goals and get that positive mental attitude and, and believe in yourself. And, um, yeah, it, it had a profound effect on my development, you know, as a young teenager and a young adult. And so it, it was interesting that you actually worked with the organization. And I knew my dad knew Lou Tice and I had met him several times and, and he was, he was just fun to be around. He's somebody when you're around, you just wanted to, you, you just, you just wanted to be like him. You know, he just had that, that charisma, as you said. Yeah, for sure. How would you describe your leadership style? Um, I would describe it as developing still. <laughs> um, as, as it always is, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've come to my end point yet. Um, I recently had a, you know, you know, when you get your, I, I, I would describe myself as a promoter. Um, I want to um, help others get to where they want to go. I help, I want to understand where their strengths are and where, I can help them, um, you know, foster those and, and um, help them get to where they are. Uh, we work with a lot of young people um, here at One Love, especially. Well, I did a Boys and Girls Club, too. And really understanding that, um, you know, when somebody comes here to um, join this organization and, and help with this um, mobilization of mission, um, you know, they're not going to stay in that role forever. And so how you develop them in that role while also understanding where they want to go next and helping them get to that next point. And um, so I would 
describe myself as a promoter in that way. And when, what is your biggest challenge every day in your current leadership position? Um, bandwidth. I would say that, um, you know, there's a lot of work um, we wear, and especially a nonprofit, it's notorious for wearing a lot of different hats. And so sometimes for me, um, I find myself um, toward the end of the week, and I've been so buried in all of the things that I'm trying to figure out and accomplish that sometimes I've left my team behind a little bit. And so I've, you know, I, um, so one of my uh, challenges is just making sure that I'm um, available and there for them when they need me because I, I need them to let me know that I don't, I'm not always um, cognizant of, you know, what issues they might be dealing with. And so, um, but it is, it's, it's kind of a bandwidth thing for me. It's like, there's just so much to do and there's so many people to talk to and it's, you know, yeah. it's like, how do you do it all? So um, for me, that's, that's kind of what I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. Such a common, common uh, thing we all deal with is, you know, there's just so many things we want to do and how do you get it all in? And then, as you said, uh, making sure that your team is on board too, because sometimes if you don't pay attention to it, you can be way out ahead and and they're not as close behind you as you'd like them to be. So you got to bring them along. What what risk did you take in your career that that you think really paid off in uh, uh, later years? I left, I worked for the Seattle Times for like 15 years, and um, and I had, when I left, I was one of the top salespeople there. I was in the retail end of things, and I'd been gone for 22 years almost. And um, so in that last 22 years, a lot of cha- things had changed with the paper that I didn't necessarily foresee. But I, I left when I was at the very top of my game. And... Um, and I left because my son, I had just had a son and I wanted to try the stay at home mom thing. And which it was really, really a very a scary thing for me because I had never, I didn't know anybody who didn't work, who was a mom. <laughs> I didn't have any friends or I didn't, I really didn't know what I was going to do. But in hindsight, in all of the things that I went through during that time, it was one of the best decisions I did make um, because I actually, this is what it actually made me kind of pivot my direction where I was going to go with my next career. And that's how I ended up getting into the nonprofit world. And I, I don't think I ever would have gone from corporate to nonprofit had I not had that experience. And it's actually been, um, even though it's probably harder than a lot of other things, I think it's been, the very most gratifying thing to me um, by doing that. And, and, yeah. and, you know, you don't see that or understand that at the time when you're taking a leap, but I can look back at it now and know that every every step along the way, in some weird way, I was supposed to be doing that, and that was supposed to be happening to me. And so um, I don't know if that's a huge risk, but I think it was a risk at the time. No, it's a huge risk, and I think that we've talked about it many times on this program before where – 
so many um, new professionals and, and people throughout their careers uh, don't are afraid to take that risk, both professionally and personally. And I think most people that, that end, um, end up in a pretty high leadership position, whatever, can go back and, and identify risks that they took. And yours was a huge risk. I mean, you just described that that was, um, that was a tough one and, uh, and then took a lot of guts to do it. And then it, and it, and it, it steered you in a, in a position of where your journey has taken you now. So the reason I bring it up is because I just do think that people need to consider uh, what risks. If you always take the easy way out or the safe uh, safe road, uh, sometimes you don't reach the higher levels of what you could be. So um, I commend you, and, and I think that that's uh, what people should consider. And that's not to say you should quit your job or do this or do that because we don't ever know what it really is. But you shouldn't not take a risk because you're, you're afraid of it. Sometimes you just need to, you know, jump in the water. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I think just about anyone I know who's actually taken that leap and done something, you know, gotten out of the safe and to see what's out there has nearly always found a better place and a more gratifying place. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and I saw that a lot with people when I worked at the Seattle Times um, because it was sort of one of these places that people never left because they had there was all these great things there, even though it was kind of a grind in some ways. And then they would take the leap, and then the next thing you know, they're off doing some fantastic work that they never thought was possible. Um until they, you know, made that decision. And so, um, I, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think you, you know, we just both said it, which is, you know, if you just uh, sit around and wait for something to happen, um, it often doesn't, but if you take a risk and and go after something, um, you know, usually that turns out to be a good thing and then not a, not a bad thing. So, are you encouraged with the progress that, that women are making towards leadership roles in our society today? You know, I'm I'm always an optimist on things. So I would say, yes, but there's so much more work to be done. I guess it's a little um, discouraging sometimes to think that we haven't become, we're not farther along. You know, <laughs> I think of that ad way back, I guess it was in the 80s that said, you know, we've come a long way, baby. And I don't think we have in a lot of ways. And so I, um, and while I've, I can do anything and and go anywhere. And as a woman that I'm being, you know, have bias against me, I know that a lot of women do, and I know that it's out there and I wish it really wasn't because I don't, I mean, I I just feel like um, we're making progress, but we just have so much more to do. And, um, I don't know. And again, I think that uh, part of the work that we're doing with One Love, I hope that it um, brings more women up. It's not a women's issue for sure, but, you know, women do have voices in this, and I think that will help. But I just feel like we just have so much more to accomplish. And even when you come to um, earning potential and um women in leadership positions. Um, and it's proven time and time again that women do such an amazing job as leaders. So it just is um, odd to me that there's not more uh, women in high leadership positions. 
And what advice would you give college-age women as they begin their careers and have ambition to develop into leadership roles? Um, gosh, that's a great question. Well, I would, I, um, I wish I had done more of this. I would definitely um, find some really good mentors, um, and I, and not just women mentors, but men mentors who really can get behind you and um, kind of lift your, um, you know, blow some wind in your sails too. Because I think mentorship and, and true mentorship, meaning that you're, it's a reciprocal mentorship um, um, and really seek some of that out. Because I think, um, you know, it, it's so much easier to have somebody help you along the way than try to go it alone. And I would say that don't be afraid to continue to step out and, um, and use your voice. You know, it's sometimes it's intimidating when you're in a room full of men and you don't want to speak up. But you know what? You're smart. You can do it. And I, I mean, I, I don't think you should be afraid. Yeah, that's great advice. When you get up in the morning, what excites you? What 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 do you do? Uh, you know, to, to to make a difference in your role. Besides that first cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It always takes a little help, right? Um, gosh, I get excited. So one of my, I mean, I what one of the things I love about my job is not only you know this whole mission that we are on to, you know, save lives through healthy relationship education, but it's, I love to talk to people. I love to um, go out and meet with people. And um, so when I get up in the morning, I kind of go through my calendar and see what, what's going on that day. Um, you know, for me, the tough things, you know, writing reports and, you know, putting numbers in columns and all that kind of stuff. But going out and talking with people, it gets me excited because getting out to talk about what we're doing and and then seeing how people light up when they know how they might be able to help, you know, introduce somebody. So those are the kinds of things that kind of get me sort of excited and going every day. Um, and uh, I love that part of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for someone who's seen you in action. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've read any of Malcolm Gladwell's book, but uh, you're a connector. Yeah. You're somebody that gets out there and and uh, talks to people and connects them and gets them excited. And, uh, you know, the world needs people like you to, to do that. So that's the awesome. The last three days, I'll just say, so our CEO has been here and I put together this very aggressive um, agenda for the week for us. And <laughs> this morning I woke up and I went, oh, my goodness. This is, it was exhausting, but it was so fun because we probably talked to, you know, 150 people over the course of the last few days, and it was just so much fun every time we got to go in and share and talk and present. It was just a great week. I mean, I could do a couple of days of that every week, and I would be so happy. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So getting back to healthy relationships again, what are the key things that teens and young adults need to understand when entering into an intimate relationship? Wow. Well, you know, I think one of the key things is, and I would, I highly suggest that um, any of your listeners go onto our website and look at the 10 healthy and unhealthy signs of a relationship. And really, I would take those to heart and look at the um, the definitions and kind of see, kind of think about how it factors into their own lives because I think it's 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 really a key component of what we do. But it's not just what we do; it's what um, all humans pretty much do. These signs are everywhere. There, it doesn't matter what gender you are, race, socioeconomic um, status, um, religious 
ethical, ethnical. I mean, it's all over the board. And so these um, signs of healthy and unhealthy relationships are really something that as young people are getting involved, um, they really should take a look at this and kind of understand. In fact, earlier this week when we were having these events, um, we have what we call teen ambassadors who are young people in our high schools um, throughout the area. Actually, we have 180 of them across the country right now, but they actually go out and they teach One Love um, in their own schools and they talk to their peers about this. And they would tell you that being able to understand the healthy and unhealthy signs in the relationship and understanding how to move at a comfortable pace um, and learn how to build trust and honesty, um, what it means to be independent within a relationship, uh, respect one another, um, understand you know quality and equity and kindness, having fun and knowing how to deal with healthy conflict and just taking responsibility for actions are some of the things that going into a relationship the things that um, both both participants, you know, kind of um, will benefit from understanding. What's the biggest or most common mistake that people you work with or that you've seen over your career make when trying to be an effective leader? Being controlling um, or micromanaging people. I think when you don't let people, I think by empowering people to do their best work and um, helping them find their sweet spot in what they do, you'll get so much more out of people and they'll get so much more out of their work and they'll, they'll, and so that you're good, they'll stay with you, um, by, by doing that. But when you try to control what everyone's doing or you ma micromanage people, then that's, that's showing them that you don't trust them to do their job. Um, that's showing them that you don't respect their work. And, you know, it ties right into healthy and unhealthy relationships. I mean, it just, it, it doesn't work very well. And then you, um, you develop people into team members that don't want to be part of your team, or they might feel like they're stuck there because they need a paycheck, but then it's just a job. It's not like, you know, how am I making a difference in this? And so I think that by um, acting in those ways, you sort of squelch people's um, ability to succeed. Yeah, it's one of those myths that, you know, so many times people think, oh, now I'm in a leadership role and now I have to uh, be controlling or I have to control people or I have to... Uh, um, you, you know, uh, show them that I, I know a lot. And so, you know, I have to do this, which is just totally ineffective and, and the opposite of, of what real good leaders do, you know? So it, it's, it's interesting how we have these preconceived ideas that, that make no sense, but we go in there. And, and as you said, yeah. the same thing happens with uh, relationships, you know? I mean, no one right. wants to be controlled. That's, that's crazy. Right. Well, and it, you know, it's, it's different from, you know, setting expectations, and and some some team members might need really clear guidelines of you know what it is they need to do to help them stay on their rails, but um, and then helping them meet those expectations is different than control or micromanaging. And so you know being able to understand the difference between those things, I think, is super important too. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if you could, uh, I, you have so much more to give. I'm not saying you're at the end of your career now at all, so don't take this wrong. But if you could give your 20-something self-advice about leadership and career, uh, what would you share with yourself? Gosh, what a great question. You know what? I would have told myself to not be afraid to take some risks, go out and learn more. Um, you know, knowledge is so important and not book knowledge so much as knowledge about, you know, kind of maybe more self being more self-aware, but also just knowing that um, you are good enough and that you can go out and do things. You know, sometimes when my younger self was here, I thought I was limited by certain things. And, you know, you, really, you only put your own limitations on yourself. Um, I didn't know. I had no idea 10 or 20 years ago I would be, you know, sitting as a leader <clears throat> in this role and actually doing um, something that's super important in our world and having a team around me who um, works really hard every day and, you know, having – I have a couple of kids who just think I'm awesome and doing great work, and I never – ever would have predicted that um, until I finally kind of let myself believe in myself. And I think that um, young people today, and I think that's a super important thing is to be able to, um, you know, look at who you are and just really believe that you can do it no matter what anybody else tells you. Those are those voices in your head you shouldn't listen to. You should listen to yourself. Just tell yourself that you are good enough and you can do it. Yeah, that's great advice. And I also look at, you know, as I said earlier in the interview here, that I'm a huge believer in mindsets. And I think that sometimes we go out in the world thinking we have to show people what we know and, and, and you know, kind, kind of how smart we are in a sense where uh, a different mindset would be go out into the world every day and say, oh, my gosh, what am I going to learn today? Who's going to teach me something that's going to wow me and, and help me um, develop as a leader? And so sometimes just having a different mindset or different approach can really open some doors and make a big difference. Yeah, and, you know, just kind of that add on to that, too, is just that there's, you know, not having to have all the answers, you know, and, and kind of being vulnerable to um, everything, just, you know, not having to look like you know everything or you're perfect. Um, I think that just it helps us grow in so many ways, and it also helps us become so much more disarming when we're talking to other people because then they don't feel like they have to look like they're perfect either. And then you can kind yeah, of get absolutely. down to the real root of things, and it's so much more pleasant that way. Yeah, you said it, you said it so well right there, that the vulnerability and the, and the willingness to, to say you don't have all the answers and, and, and the openness to learn from others and be educated. Um, not only is it more effective in leadership, but it's, as you said, it's just a lot more pleasant to, to be that way yeah. in your day, right? Yeah. What are, what are you most proud of when you look back at your uh, impact in the, in the leadership roles that you've had, or, so let's say, over the last decade? I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I, I think I've been a pretty good mom. Um, so that's kind of top on my list. But, you know, when I set out on this whole um, – reinvention of my life over the last 10 years. I've done, I think, some, you know, pretty notable things that have helped me grow to that next step. One of them was when I, um, with the Wave Foundation and um, managed the 
the event a few years ago, several years ago now, and it was a really successful year uh, for the Wave Foundation, and I had never done an event that large and that um, involved with so many working pieces. And I remember at the end of that day, I was not only exhausted, but I was also so happy with how everything had turned out. So um, I was immensely proud of that. And it really helped me realize how much more I could do. Um, so when I moved over to the Boys and Girls Club, eventually I helped, I was, I led efforts on a capital campaign that um, ended up being close to $25 million and it helped us build two brand new buildings and, um, you know, put these uh, places together that, you know, all these kids from around the area could utilize. And I, that I was really, really proud the day I got to stand in one of the buildings that I helped build. And it was really a cool thing. And um, so, and then this last year, just being part of the One Love organization and seeing that the work we're doing every day is actually translating into, you know, people writing us letters every day and saying what One Love has done to help them in their lives and how they just um, appreciate us so much. And so, um, and all of those have been in some sort of a leadership role and all of them along the way, I've had a lot of people who come up and help do this because I haven't done it by myself. Um, and just being able to build these teams that have been able to kind of help keep things going and keep me going and, um, having so many great people kind of have my back, um, as I'm, um, trying to move things forward has just been a really, uh, gratifying thing for me. It's so cool to see when you said earlier, you know, how overwhelmed we can be sometimes and we get buried in the minutia. And then if you do step back and look and see what an impact you have had on communities and people, I mean, you talk about inspiring. It's just, it's so awesome. And, and, uh, you know, I applaud you for, for all you've done and, and it's amazing. And I know you're being very humble, but the impact is huge. So, uh, step back once in a while and take that big view and smile because it's, it's impressive. Thank you. Now, usually at this time of the interview, Michelle, I, I ask all our, uh, interviewees, uh, give us a pearl of wisdom. So in relation to leadership, what can you leave us with today as a pearl of wisdom? Well, I, so my pearl of wisdom, I'm, I'm sure that lots of leaders say this, but I I feel like um, one of the best things you can do as a leader is um, surround yourself with people who do things better than you and um, have skill sets that you don't have. Um, because if everyone on your team is the same as you, then the the wheels lopsided, right? And so um, my hope when I build out a team is to have um, a different skill set so everybody can come together and and um, make the ride a lot smoother. And so um, that's my pearl of wisdom. Just surround yourself with people who do things that you don't do very well so they can help you along the way so you can actually do the leading and um, other people can help push the whole thing along with you. 
Yeah, it's a lesson that's uh, that's been proven time and time again, and it's such one to, to think about. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And thank you, Michelle, for being on the program today. Uh, I just, you know, wish you the best with your continued work with One Love Foundation. I mean, what a what an impactful uh, uh, journey that you're on. And, and I, I think that, you know, if we can improve the relationships of our young people, which then improves the leadership abilities of all those people, I mean, it's obviously going to have a huge effect on our society and, and hopefully, uh, you know, continue to do wonderful things. So keep up the good work. I really appreciate your time uh, this morning. I know how busy you've been this week. And so to take this time with me this morning, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure uh, people are going to get a lot out of this interview. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you, Steve. This has been so fun. And um, and I do appreciate you reaching out and, and having me on. It's been, it's been great. So thank you. Okay. Well, have a, have a great weekend and get a little rest, okay? Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com and that is orange the word.coaching.com and go to the media center and click on podcasts or video gallery you can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com